papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Welcome to the Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis on media issues this week. News media, that would be. I'm your host, Rex Smith, with Alan Shartok, of course. This week with Rosemary Armeo and Judy Patrick, your regulars here on the Media Project, and we're very happy to be with you. We have a lot of topics to get to here, dealing with local opinion journalism, the hypocrisy of Fox. Imagine that, whether newsrooms will ever return post-pandemic newsrooms as we've known them, and maybe even we'll get to how media covers policing. Let me start with Dr. Shartok, sir. Please, uh, please. You're a distinguished opinion journalist. You write multiple columns. You offer your points of view on the radio, of course, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio and political commentator. There's a notion here that is being advanced by McClatchy, which is the second biggest newspaper chain in the country. There's an opportunity for local opinion journalism to thrive. They're uh, trying to strengthen the opinion offerings of their newspapers around the country by focusing on local. And I just want to ask if you think that that's a smart strategy. And the reason I ask is because it seems to me that local opinion, while very important journalistically, doesn't carry the same punch. That what readers, listeners, viewers really respond to is sort of what they hear on television, the national stuff. What's your experience? You know, Rex, it's interesting that you raise this because I have a personal story, which I almost always do. And <laughs> there's something called Empire Report, and it's daily. And it's a wonderful operation. And what happened was they carry my statewide column every week, and it's up there. But they also carry my local column, which I write for the Berkshire Edge, E-D-G-E. And I said to the guy, my very, very good friend, JP, why are you carrying the local one, too? And he said, we get more clicks on the local one than we get on the statewide one. Because you're always wow. talking about how the local lake is being despoiled or people should get out and walk more. And that is closer to what a lot of people think. Now, when I castigate the local select people, people like that too, although they have no idea who they are. So I think that McClatchy may be on to something. Huh. Rosemary, you're a former managing editor of a metropolitan newspaper down in Florida. Do you find that in that experience and others, have you found local opinion work motivates readers? Yep. I think it's more widely read than anything else in the paper on the local level, more than police blotters or city council meeting or school board meetings. Uh, we see it in Albany with Chris Churchill, who's widely read and extremely interesting. Mike Mayo was a local columnist for the Fort Lauderdale. He writes about food now, but he is known to people. They have a personal connection with him. They care about his opinion on a wide range of things, and he knows the community really, really well. So you get issues and topics that you would not otherwise. One of my favorite columnists ever was a local architecture columnist in Florida. 
she could rouse opinion and get people riled up. I would never have believed ahead of time. Who who cares about this? But they do. They do care about how their buildings look and how they fit into the surroundings. And that's what she wrote about. She knew her community and she knew her topic. I think it's a great idea. I don't think it's new. That was a brilliant analysis, if you think about it, Rosemary, because part of what you were saying, and I I agree with this, is after a while, they get to know the local colonists. They think they're the friend of the local sure. colonists, or they hate them, you know. Well, and, right. and people still right. have— and either way uh, they high, read. Yeah. yeah, either way they read. And people still have high regard for Fred Lebrun, who was for many years in the Times Union many days a week, and now he writes only once a month, but still people know Fred. Judy, during your tenure as editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, I think you began to endorse candidates for office again. Isn't that right, that the Gazette had not done for many years? That's correct. We did start doing that again. When you're dealing with dozens and dozens of municipalities, it becomes a tremendous amount of work to do that. And you have to understand your audience because only the audience lives in the town of Glenville, for example, is going to be interested in your editorial about the Glenville town supervisor. And that goes throughout the region. It's a fine line between writing local, local. And I agree with local. I mean, there's a thousand writers out there today writing editorials about the president, about what's happening nationally, and even what's happening statewide. But there's no one really writing about your municipality. But if your audience is very, very small, that's who you have to address your writing to. I'm not going to be interested in reading an editorial about a zoning problem in the town of Queensbury, for example. So if you have a regional newspaper, you have to develop regional topics, but they can be local as well. The problem is if you get too local, you lose a great portion of your audience. Well, yes, that's true. The thing that's interesting to me is that sometimes what's going on in another town far, far away is uh, terribly interesting. You know, there's nothing more interesting than police or the allegations of police corruption. And if you read about it in a small town in western Massachusetts and you follow it, you would see that that's really something if the police are actually doing that. So it becomes topical as opposed to purely local. Yeah. Good local columnists manage to find the universal and the extremely local. I always thought of it as similar to gossip, which is if you're listening to two people talking about a juicy little gossip thing, you don't care about exactly where they live or or who they are even. It's the situation that you're interested in. And that's what a good local column is. One of the interesting elements of the McClatchy newspaper's approach is, well, there are two interesting elements. First, they're getting local advisory boards. They're bringing in citizens into each of their regional advisory groups, and these citizens will serve for a few months and advise the editorial boards, let's say. And second, they are uh, their five guiding principles across all the newspapers, the McClatchy papers around the country. During my tenure at the Hearst newspaper here in town, we had no such guiding principles. Each newspaper uh, did its own opinion pages and so on. But it is interesting, these broad principles that McClatchy is approving, uh, advocate for social justice, end of systemic racism and inequality, the growing urban-rural divide, investigating policy and cultural implications. These are actually, frankly, the progressive agenda right now seems to be reflected in this. And I think there is a bit of a hazard in a national chain like this articulating standards that they're going to apply across the country, but, you know, they own the newspapers. They can do what they want to, right? That's the theory, I suppose. If you own the press, you get to call the shots. But the question then, Rex, is why? 
Why are they doing that? Is it to sell more newspapers? Is it to get more people involved? Or is it just because, you know, like Superman, God is on his side? What's the deal? Well, that's a valid question. I think that in this case, they're saying that these are the issues that need to be explored. It sounds sincere to me, but there is no such thing as a divide, really, between what's right to do and what also draws an audience, because if you're really speaking the truth to your audience, you're doing the right thing, and it ultimately is going to redound to your benefit, I think. Maybe I'm being Pollyanna here. <laughs> Ooh, you? I hope that's true. Yeah, imagine that. But, you know, you have to walk this fine line all the time, Alan, at WAMC. I mean, you're a regional presence. You have a large footprint, and yet you have very local stories. I mean, this is why that's right. I'm sitting here in, in my home in Troy, and I know the name Dominic Sarno, who's the mayor of a community <laughs> in Massachusetts, you know? Nobody in Troy has ever known the name of the mayor of Springfield before, you know? <laughs> that's, that's right. And also, they know the name of each of the congresspeople. So WAMC, our station, represents a huge swath of population. You know, we're talking about 500,000 regular listeners. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so when you, you look at where all of this stuff is, you say, well, okay, you, to Rex's point, we now know in New York State who Richie Neal is, who is the congressman, again, from Springfield and is also the head of one of the most powerful committees in the Congress. But what it does is it does cross-pollinate, doesn't it, comma, question mark? <laughs> I, I found the guidelines that were put out for this new idea of local opinion writing to be interesting. Committee work is difficult to mesh with journalism. I, I, are they to suggest ideas? Are they to edit columns? I, I don't understand exactly how that works. It's more like an editorial board, Rex. You know how that is. That might be an excellent idea. I'm not sure. And the other thing is that the guidelines listed, and you, you said one of them, racial equality was one, for example. Is that a topic? What is the guideline? We're for it or against it? I found it unclear exactly how it would work. Well, they're saying we encourage you, aren't they? You know, one of the interesting things about WAMC, which is a fairly liberal footprint, is we used to have a guy on named Herb London. Do you guys remember him at all? Oh, yeah. Herb London ran for governor as a conservative party candidate, right? He was, he was a very right-wing guy. <laughs> Uh -huh. And we would have him on, and we would hear from our rather liberal constituency, get him off. And they would always say the same thing. And it was always, well, you know, I understand that you, you have to have a conservative opinion on. But, he's, yeah, but he's not a genuine conservative. Well, Herb London died. He died. <laughs> so what happened was we now got another guy from the London Institute named for him, and the guy says exactly the same outrageous things that Herb London said, you know. So now I get telephone calls from people saying, can't you get a real conservative as opposed to the, you know, the same thing? Well, you know, this McClatchy proposal calls for these community advisory boards. So this isn't anything new. New This cycles through the newspaper industry every what, five to ten years. Right, where, right. But it calls for people from the community to come in and 
actually try to impact the editorial coverage, the the opinion coverage in some respects. Uh, people who have actually done this say it can be a lot of work, but it can provide some perspectives that you don't get from the newsroom traditionally. So maybe it does bring in outside voices, but editors are notoriously reluctant to be told that they need to cover something that they're not. I mean, the generational perspective is that, you know, don't tell me what the community wants to uh, read about. But um, again, these advisory boards, it, this is just a trend that's coming around once again. I agree with you. And let me just say that it is open to corruption also. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, okay, let's say you get a publisher of a paper, you know, as the, you know, the editorial page is supposedly the publisher's page, and he chooses people of similar stripe to be on the advisory committee. Basically, it's a loaded game. What do you think of that? Well, yes, that could be the case, but at least he's getting outside voices. And you have to hope that the publisher or the editor, whoever is making these choices, is really conscious of trying to bring in extraneous viewpoints, at least bringing in different perspectives across the divides, racial, gender, generational, geographic the divides in American society, you love to get all of those voices in a room and see what comes out. So you hope that they're fair players. But, you know, just in the same way, uh, choosing the voices that go on to the air here at WAMC, you know, you're striving to get a range of voices in the room, or I guess it's not actually in a room anymore, is it? Everybody's sitting at home. <laughs> As we are. By the way, this is a good point to turn to this other topic, which is the continuation of newsrooms not really existing. And there's an interesting analysis that has emerged uh, in the Columbia Journalism Review about whether newsrooms will ever return and whether it matters. You know, we are all sitting in our homes here. I think most of WAMC is being produced, or that is most of the voices are coming from where, Alan, or from home, right? Actually not. The newsroom is pretty much intact. They come hmm. in. Now, we do have a vast array of bureau chiefs. They don't come in because they're in Springfield or they're in, you know, more western Massachusetts near where I live. So each of these bureau chiefs has to do something every day. So they got two stories on the air. So there are two Massachusetts stories every day. But of course, I get telephone calls. I got one just yesterday saying, how come there's never any Massachusetts news on your radio station? People hear what they want. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what's happening. Big publications like the Miami Herald, the Charlotte Observer, now they are falling under the custody of a hedge fund and terminated the leases on the seven headquarters of those big newspapers. Wow. What is lost if there is no newsroom? There is no longer a newsroom for the New York Daily News, the Orlando Sentinel. What's lost there? Rosemary, you worked in a couple of those newsrooms, didn't you? Baltimore you did. Yes, of course, yeah. And it seemed to me that we spent a lot of time as editors in those newsrooms saying to reporters, get out of the newsroom. Get out. We don't <laughs> want to see you here. Go report. You have to be out talking to people in order to collect stories. The problem now, of course, is that these decisions are being made not for any sort of news gathering reason, but strictly for money. So no one there has asked the questions that you have just asked. What's being lost? What are we losing by sending people out? And the other thing is, is that they're not going out to the community. They're going home. And I see it in classes the same way. I have journalism students who are learning interviewing by calling people on the phone. Come on. You don't learn how to, how to read people, how to talk to people, 
how to find out their secrets. You don't find that over a telephone. And by relying on sources that you hear about or who are willing to answer a phone, a lot is being lost. But it will be, I think, overcome by the money decision. And you'll hear people say, oh, no, it's just a lot of bohemians who love to sit together and chat and talk. And so I don't expect to see newsrooms back, just as I don't expect to see a lot of offices back. Another really important thing that's being lost is journalists in their first and second and third year of their careers, they're losing really valuable mentorship they could get from their editors. Sure, they can have conversations over the phone, but they're not talking to the experienced journalists in the room. I mean, they're talking, but they're talking over the phone, and nothing really can compare to having someone sit side by side with you and pointing out how your copy could be improved or where the story might go. And these people have been out there for a year without, you know, that kind of hand-holding or that kind of career development. And I think that needs to be restored. I remember sitting in the big newsroom of Newsday when I was a young reporter. The guy who sat next to me, a veteran reporter, I learned a lot of how not to behave, honestly. I remember being shocked how often I would hear him say to somebody, let's go off the record. You know, he would hit a a dead end and immediately try to go off the record as opposed to trying to push through on an interview. And I vowed Mm -hmm. to not be that guy who so relentlessly offered off the record because on the record sources are, of course, so much more powerful. Relying on off the record is sort of a lazy way to do reporting. And so you learn both what's good and what's bad by being in a newsroom. And oftentimes, the team approach. Big stories frequently require more than one reporter. And that kind of interaction is what can really keep things going, can fuel good journalism. So I'm really sorry to see this happening, but I think you're exactly right. It's not going to change because the financial pressure on the industry is piling on top of the coronavirus impact and newsrooms are never going to return the way they used to be. Rex, if I may, I'd like to raise sure. the subject. Would that be possible? I mean, this is please do. You're the head guy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I don't oh, like yeah. to step right. on your toes. However, mm-hmm. I'm very interested in something that's just happened in my little town of Great Barrington, and that is there was a school here, and the school was basically catering to troubled kids. I believe the current amount of money a parent would pay is a hundred thousand bucks a year for tuition. That's a lot of money. So the guy who invented it and who ran it was arrested. He was arrested for rape. This is not now. This was years ago. He's long dead. And I took him on, by the way, in my columns, and really, I was very upset with him, and he was upset with me. Well, now, all these years later, there's investigative reporting going on on how come that story was undercovered. I'd be fascinated to hear from our wonderful panel here whether or not, you know, because journalism the first blush of history. So I'd be interested to know if the news media has an obligation to go back and look at what happened years ago. Well, consider, Alan, how we are only now learning, for example, of the impact of the slave trade on the success of educational institutions like Georgetown University, founded by the Jesuits. Consider that the Catholic Church is now attempting to atone for that very directly by putting money into it. I think it depends on the story. Wouldn't it be so that generally, I think there are certainly enough issues present right now that need to be reported on, that we tend to not dig deep into the past, but some of these topics that were undercovered at the time, the impact of slaves 
fueling the growth of the church is certainly one of those. It is interesting, important, relevant to how we view today. So I think that's at least the way, first way I would answer it. Rosemary, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think some of the best investigative reporting, which of course is my great love, has come from going back into the historical record. So it isn't just that journalism is the first draft of history. It's that journalism can go back into the history and re-report, find out new things. I, I think that's exactly right. We're hearing now apologies from newspapers for the way they've covered racial incidences, especially in the past. And I'm talking about the civil rights era, not just slavery. We didn't do a good job. Newspapers in general did not do a good job now. They're going back. A paper in Mississippi has done fantastic job covering the 60s era in Mississippi and how police treated blacks there. Yeah, I think it's way necessary. There's, you see it in wars, too. The 50th and 60th anniversary of World War II resulted in all this new reporting on decisions made at the political level and troop movements and things that you could not really report in the middle of war coverage and the whole fever of war. Now you go back and look at it, and it does, I think, read more like history than journalism, but it's still really interesting and, and very fertile ground. Well, in, in New York State, you saw a slew of stories along these very same lines that Alan was referring to because New York State changed the rules about when victims of sexual abuse could sue, filed civil lawsuits against their perpetrators, and it went back many years. And so there were a lot of civil lawsuits filed, giving newspapers and other media outlets the opportunity to go back to these old stories or, or to find stories that had been covered up that they didn't even know about in the first place. And so I'm not sure what's happening in Massachusetts. It could be that there's a civil lawsuit involved that might prompt a renewed interest in that case. No, what happened was, it's very interesting, a very brilliant young reporter, an investigative reporter, on her own and worked on this story for years. Talked to a lot of the people who went to the school and who described it in terrible ways and opened it all up again. It was really just her Herculean effort that made this happen. It's being picked up by others. Well, that's terrific. You know, the difficulty for an editor is deciding how to allocate scarce resources. You know, you talk about that right. a lot, Alan. And the yeah. fact is, if you only have a certain number of reporters' hours available in a week, how do you put that in. And so credit to the reporter who uncovered this story you're describing. It sounds like she must have done a lot of that on her own, putting in the effort over time. And that's what we always encourage reporters to do. Always have a story you're working on long term. You may be out in a few months, a story that you're working on for the weekend and a couple of things you're working on today. That's uh, sort of the dream reporter. You've got stuff that's well, coming right away later and then much later. Well, you know, this is very interesting stuff because I'm sure Rosemary and Judy and you, and I certainly know in my case, every once in a while, somebody will ring you up or see you on the street and whisper something in your ear. In other words, a lot of stories come from the fact that somebody has tipped you off about something that's going on. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. And usually the best stories arise, uh, I've always said, not from editors' desktops, but from reporters' notebooks. If, you, if a reporter is on top of her beat, she has more stories than she can possibly get to. But yeah, there are times when a tip comes your way, hopefully so. Or somebody like this, a reporter will get a story based on something that some phenomenal piece of research that this lady, this I'm sorry, that this woman did. And it becomes a news story, and it's a fairly easy news story to just pick up on what the report said, but it can be done well or not well. 
Yeah, exactly. I know, time time changes things too. Times change things. Yeah. One one story I did years ago was on 15 years after the shooting at Kent State, and that time um, made a difference. People who would not talk in 1970 were willing to talk in 1985, right. and new records became available. And journalism is replete with stories of cold cases that a journalist dig, digs up and goes back and looks at the original uh, police and uh, court records and finds new material and new witnesses and brings about, um, you know, changes in, in, in uh, incarceration. Has the, the Innocence Project at um, Northeastern has done this for years, gone back and looked at capital cases and gotten people out of prison because they were wrongfully put in years ago. So One more topic before we go away, because we're oh, just no. about to the end of the show. It's true. It's true. Okay. Uh, you know, we were talking about newsrooms staying open. Interestingly, Fox News has told its staff to stay home for a while still because of the threat of coronavirus. Yet on Fox, Tucker Carlson is the person who is raising all kinds of questions about whether all of this attention to the coronavirus is really necessary or whether it's not being overplayed by the liberal left-wing Democrats who now supposedly run the country. Carlson says he is just asking questions as he quotes all kinds of vaccine deniers, the anti-vaxxers. That, I must say, and I'd like to hear your opinion, sounds irresponsible to me. Just asking questions is not really journalism, is it? How do you spell jerk? <laughs> C-A-R-L-S-O-N, Tucker Carlson. I think the damage that Fox is doing came out in a recent Gallup poll, which showed that Democrats tend to overemphasize the danger of coronavirus, and the Fox viewer types, the real conservatives, tend to underplay it. And both of those lead to some bad decisions, so that you see the Tucker Carlson fans of the world not getting vaccines, which is just crazy, and not wearing masks, and not taking seriously any of the public health warnings. And then you see Democrats who listen maybe to MSNBC people who overemphasize deaths and the extreme cases, which are not the majority, you know, won't open schools as easily. So I think the media on both sides, but especially Tucker Carlson, hold a lot of responsibility for opinions that are affecting behavior in our society. You know, this just asking questions is kind of from the former president's playbook as well. He would say things like, well, just asking the question, you know, is Barack Obama really born in the U.S.? Just yeah. asking the question. It's so irresponsible. And his viewers are not hearing what he's doing. I mean, they're taking away the fact that he thinks he's asserting a true fact. should be noted that Rupert Murdoch, the owner of that grand empire, he snuck up and got an early vaccine when he was in Great Britain. I think it was way back in late December, or early January. I'd be interested to know whether Tucker himself has gotten a vaccine. I think he probably mm -hmm. has. All right. Well, that happens to be the last word because we are sadly oh, yeah. out of time. Yeah. The show ought to be an hour. <laughs> he says yet again. Dr. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Romeo, Judy Patrick, I'm Rex Smith, with thanks to our uh, terrific producer, David Castina, and thanks to you all for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to her podcast. 
podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>